Our heart is our altar. And when we lay his name on our altar, we have put him in our life. This morning, before we move on, let's just take a moment to evaluate who's been on the throne of our heart. In this week, in our priorities that we've made and the way we've spent our time, the way we've invested our money, the way we've given our efforts and our talents, who's been on the throne in those areas. And that might be a moment of conviction for a lot of us, me included. But as Tony just told us, we, in the temple of the Holy Spirit, He lives within us. It's not just a moment we share in this room together singing, but we bring the Holy Spirit with us as we go out these doors. So Father, right now I pray that we would be reminded once again there is no one like our God who lives within us, who gives us the life that we have. Lord, not just the breath that we breathe, but the eternity that we hold within us, the hope forever. As we walk out these doors from this moment, that it would not be lost, that it would not be forgotten in the distractions of our world, but we would hold on to the truth. We thank you for it, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Good morning, church. It is good to see you. 11 o'clock service. It is getting warm out there. I know it's because we have air conditioning. <laughs> this, this weekend has been beautiful. How many of you guys have had a chance to spend some time out, outdoors? In the garden, outside? I mean, as Oregonians, we really have to take advantage before we all scuttle back indoors at 3 o'clock. It's going to be 90 degrees today, and that's real hot. Um, we just have a couple of announcements for you today. Um, and the first is that today is the BGMC Rollathon. Our kids have been hard at work fundraising, asking people for donations or to be sponsored per lap. If you don't know what the Rollathon is, basically our kids in our kids' ministry are going to be here from 5 to 7 p.m. And they are doing laps around the church property on everything that they can bring from home that has wheels. We have kids bringing bicycles tricycles, scooters, maybe a unicycle. That'd be That'd be impressive. I think that person should get double the sponsorships. Um, but BGMC really raises money uh, for our missionaries around the world, and it actually provides them with very important items like audiovisual equipment, printed curriculum, basically anything that our missionaries need to spread the gospel. BGMC funds that are directly raised by kids goes to support that. And I was looking at a statistic that said since the 50s, since like the late 40s into the early 50s, BGMC, so kids ages K, kindergarten through fifth grade, have given close to $2 million to this effort. That is impressive. That's not just change. And I really love that our kids are hard at work doing this because we start young believing that an attitude of generosity and of sacrificial giving, when you have that habit established when you're young, it's not difficult to maintain that when you're an adult. And so we love that our kids are doing this. So if you see a kid going around campus today, Judah is wildly waving his flag up here. You say please. no to that cherub face. Whoa, I got an echo. Whoa. <laughs> please, Conviction. Please. <laughs> you say no to that cherub face. I dare you. 
Please stop by the table Try to sleep right tonight. out front and sign up. Yes. Like, like we said, we can do a one-time donation or you can sponsor <laughs> a student per lap. It would really mean a lot to them if you would support them in this. So yes. please, please, please do that. And, uh, and it's cool because this isn't just them mooching money off their parents now. They're earning money for, for, uh, for, for missions. And I love that, that they have skin in the game. And so uh, thanks for supporting our kids. Speaking of kids, uh, coming up in two weeks on July 10th, we are having a dedication Sunday. And uh, Pastor Charity told me we already have a grip of kids and families um, that are going to be involved with being dedicated. So it's going to be an awesome Sunday. But if you have a child you want to be have dedicated, let me tell you, this isn't just child dedication. This is family dedication. And we are dedicating families to the Lord, saying, we, as far as it is with us and our family, we are going to serve the Lord, and our children, we're going to raise them in the knowledge of the Lord. And so we are going to have a dedication Sunday on July 10th, but at the end of the service, when you do our connection cards, make sure you check that box that you're interested in that, so we can be in touch with you, make sure that you know what's going on, um, and all those things. So mark your connection card if you want to have your child dedicated. And finally, one of the biggest events that takes place all year, but really in the summer, is VBS. VBS is coming up fast. It, this year, it's July 25th through the 29th. We've got QR codes that are made available, or you can go to nlcchurch.com slash VBS or sign up with Pastor Charity. This year's VBS is a little bit different in that it actually takes place in the, in the early evening. And so, one, we want to see all your kids here. So if you haven't signed up, do that already. Please feel free to invite neighbors, friends. We don't want to just see faces of kids that we know here at New Life. This is for everybody. So spread the word. But two, one of the great things about having VBS in the late afternoon is that adults are usually off work by then. And what this means is that you get to be a part in VBS. And so please sign up. Pastor Charity is hard at work building great teams. If you are not available during the week of July 25th through the 29th, please still sign up. There is a whole bunch that can be done in the days and weeks leading up to that or even in the early daytime hours. This is something we want the whole church to be involved in because New Life Church is a whole church kind of church. Amen. We are all hands on deck and it's going to be a great week. So sign up, sign yourself up to to volunteer, sign your kids up to come. It's going to be a great week. Now this is a sports camp. Um, for kids and it's teaching the basics of how of basketball and different things there's going to be things for um, all ages of, of kids and all genders you might say Brent I'm not the physical specimen you are I don't know if I can do the athletic things that we're talking about let me tell you you can rest it why was so many chuckles there you can rest assured we, we are working on basics with kids. There's a place for you. There's guaranteed to be a place for you. So we are so excited for this. Make sure you sign up. Um, with that said, um, at this time, we're going to receive our morning tithes and offerings. Thank you for your faithfulness and giving. A few weeks back, I came to you and I said, I'm always straightforward with where we stand as a church. And we came up short um, in, in, uh, in, in April for our giving. Can I tell you the church responded? In the last two months, we have seen um, us reaching our goals and even beyond to make sure that we've made up that, that deficit. Thank you for your faithfulness and giving. It is because of your faithfulness that we're able to uh, continue. I know God can do anything he wants, but he uses us as people. And so thank you for your giving. Um, at this time, I'm also excited because we have one of our students, Maylet, who is, uh, what grade are you in, Maylet? Get out of here. A, a junior in, at uh, what high school? A3, okay, in downtown Springfield. And um, our students, um, Pat, uh, Melissa, our, our youth director, takes our students to something called Fine Arts Festival, and it's up um, in Albany, and churches all over our state come together, and they share, students share their giftings. They share everything from baking. You'll notice there's a recipe that's out there, so um, you can steal that recipe. One of our students baked an amazing dish. There's photography, there's, um, uh, there's instrumentation, all kinds of different 
areas that students can use their gifts. And they go and share those. And then there's evaluators that help them find ways to better employ their gift. To say ways here's you can ways you can refine it and use it further. And Maylette came up and she shared a solo at Fine Arts Festival and got incredible marks from the evaluators. And, uh, and we just are so thrilled to have her share with us in song as we receive our offering today. Amen. All right. So Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to give. You love a cheerful giver. And Lord, I thank you that the next generation of worshipers and leaders are rising up among us. And uh, that, uh, Lord, you are working through our our young people, our students. I pray that you would uh, continue to develop that. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello. I'm I'm really excited to be doing this. Um, At first, uh, I was going to do it in eighth grade, um, but COVID happened and I was set back. And then last year, um, I I can't remember if they did it or not, but um, there was some setback. I think it was because... Um, I didn't want to do it online. I wanted to do it in person. And then this year, I finally got the opportunity to share my gift with everybody. Letting go of every single dream. I lay each one down at your feet. Every moment of my wandering never changes what you see. I've tried to win this war, I confess. My hands are weary, I need your rest. Mighty warrior, king of the fight. No matter what I face, you're by my side. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. Truth is, you know what tomorrow brings. There's not a day ahead you have not seen. So in all things, be my life and breath. I want what you want, Lord, and nothing less. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. I will trust in you. You are my strength and comfort. You are my steady hand. You are my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. Your ways are always higher. Your plans are always good. There's not a place where I'll go. You've not already stood. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust.
trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. 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 Good morning, church. It's so good to see you guys. If you don't know me, my name is Ty. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege and honor of sharing the word this morning. I have kind of one goal, and that's to do just good enough that you guys are interested, but just bad enough that you guys are so thankful when Pastor Brent comes back next week. You're like, Pastor, never go on vacation. Never leave us. So it's going to be fun. I'm just kidding. But today, I want to talk to you guys about trust. Now, when we think of trust, you might think of a few things like, you know, pilots or skydivers dropping off. They're like, wow, they need to show a lot of trust. But trust is something that each one of us have to exercise every single day. See, it's at the core of what it means to follow Jesus because the Bible tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Have many of us considered what it means to trust God? See, the word trust is synonymous with words like faith or believe. So when the Bible says, believe in the Lord, and you will be saved. What it's saying is trust in the Lord and you will be saved. See, trust is an important part of any living and ongoing relationship, both with God and each other. Trust means we, uh, someone, we know someone and we trust someone enough that we can count on them to act in accordance with that trust. To trust someone, we have to know that we can trust them. Kind of a weird thing, right? See, believing, having faith, trusting are all fundamentals of life with God. I used to think that I was a pretty trusting person. My wife makes fun of me, fun of me for this all the time. When I first got into ministry, I was on this uh, small town on the coast, and uh, you would never see someone that looked more, more like Matthew McConaughey in all of his movies than me. I would uh, work about two to three hours a, a day on a good, you know, on a good day, and I would wear my backwards snapback board shorts 90% of the time. If I was wearing a shirt, you were lucky. And I lived a block from the church, so I would just be like, ah, oh, if my car breaks down. No worries, man. I'll just longboard a walk. I made sure I was at the ocean by 11 a.m. every day. I was like, man, this is important. I made just enough money to buy myself a burger for lunch every day. It was, life was good. Everyone's like, wow, man, you're really chill. I'm like, yeah, dude. Yeah, life is good. Things changed pretty dramatically when responsibility dropped to my lap. When I ended up moving from there to another church and I worked in a youth ministry that went from, hey, we're just having good times. What kind of games you guys want to play to a youth ministry where a good week was, hey, no one smoked weed in the parking lot this time. This is going pretty dang good. Like, this is awesome. My wife started to date me and she noticed, she's like, you know, I thought you were pretty relaxed until I saw you with those kids. And you're just like, what are you doing? What are you up to? Knock that off. She's like, man, like you're going to, you're going to be an interesting kind of dad with that kind of attitude, but it's easy to trust when things are going good, right? Real trust is shown 
when circumstances aren't going according to our plan, when things are hard, because trust does not come natural to most of us, in all honesty. If you're uh, in the Bible app or if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 11. It says this, Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews. And he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. Making a murderer season three, right? We're good. The next day, I thought that was funny, whatever. <laughs> the next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. The man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, thinking, everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. Let's pray. God, I know I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for your word, that it helps shape our life, that it helps transform us. Uh, your word says that the beginning of faith, the beginning and trust in you happens by hearing the word. God, I pray as we hear your word that we would trust you even more, that lives would be transformed, that destinies would be changed. God, we thank you for who you are and what you're going to continue to do in this church. And everybody said, amen. How many of you guys have ever practiced a trust fall? You guys know what I'm talking about? I cannot stand trust falls. And there's a story, and I'm going to tell you real quick. So I lived in Minnesota for a spell. And I knew things were a little different in the Midwest and the PNW because the first week I got there, we had our meeting. I thought everything went good. We were all buddies. And I ended up uh, leaving right afterwards, which Michael and Bethany will tell you that's a taboo. But I immediately left afterwards. And when I came back the next week, they're like, Ty, do you not like us? I was like, no, what do you mean? I thought we had a great meeting. And they're like, well, here in Minnesota, we don't just say goodbye and leave. You say, hey, I'm going to go. And then you stand and chat for another five minutes. And then you walk over and you grab your coat and you begin to talk for five more minutes while you're putting on your coat. And then you walk and start your car and we talk for five more minutes while you're sitting there waiting for your car to warm up. And then you sit in your car with the door open. We'll talk some more. And then you can finally, after about 20 to 30 minutes, you can leave. And I was just like, that is disgusting. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is not going to happen. But I was like, okay, things are a little different. So I'm going to have to put in a lot of effort to build some strong relationship with them. I was a worship pastor at the time. So I was like, I, I'm just going to bring my team and we're going to go hang out and build some trust. So we're, we go on this walk and we go on this hike and I end up taking them to uh, what's called a mountain in Minnesota, AKA about a four foot tall rock. Cause it's flat over there. And I, I kid you not, the rock probably comes to like right here on me. And I had this crazy idea go in my head. I was like, you know what builds trust? trust fall. So I'm like, Hey guys, we're going to do some trust falls. And all of them look at me and they're like, no, no. And I was like, you know what? It's cool. I get it. I'll go first, set the example. So I get on top of the rock and there's a couple things you need to know about me. I only fear two things in this world. Well, three, if you count my wife, but that's just, I just spoken <laughs> two things in this world. The first one is probably the most valid one. And if you guys disagree, you're just crazy. Killer whales terrified. I see a shark in the ocean. No big deal. You do you. I'll do me. Killer whales. I'm like, that thing is as smart as me. And it's bigger and it swims faster. I was like, mm -mm. I see a killer whale. I'm like, on, even on a documentary, I'm like, I ain't going in the ocean for a couple of years now. No, no, thank you. The second thing is heights. And you guys may think, yeah, everyone's afraid of heights. No. The other, uh, during Christmas this year, 
uh, Pastor Brent's like, hey, Ty, let's do the decorations. Will you just climb up the ladder and put them up? And I'm like, yeah, I want to be a good associate, so I'll do it. So I get about what I think is most of the way up, and I'm shaking, and the ladder's moving. And Pastor Brent walks in, and he's like, Ty, why don't you just come down? I'll go up, and I walk the two steps that I'd climbed, and I get down. And it was good. <laughs> it was good. But I am terrified of heights. So when I get on this four-foot-tall rock, I, like, instantly start to, you know, you huddle, and you're like, nobody touch me. Don't even look at me. Like, it's, it's scary. And they're like... I can reach you right now. What are you talking about? And so I'm like sitting there like this. I'm like, you guys ready for the trust fall? Here we go. And here's the biggest and most important thing about a trust fall. You have to lay flat because you want everybody to be able to touch you with their hands. When you're like this, there's nowhere to grab. So I go and I have about two hands on my rear end and nothing else. And so I just go head first right onto the ground. And I just like get up, I shake it off. I'm like, okay, I'm still alive. Who's next? Surprisingly, nobody. Wanted to take the trust fall after I was done. If you're taking notes, here's my first point. Trust is revealed by our desires. See, here's the thing. In the, it, this, um, there's not a lot more written about this story in the story in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, they expound on it a little bit more. The writer Paul in the book of Hebrews says this. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people Instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin, he thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. See, this is very, very interesting because this isn't just like, oh, yeah, like these people are more favored or anything. He was saying, I don't want to be royalty. I'd rather be a slave. And what's interesting about slavery at this time is it wasn't just like you're down on your lack, oh, I'm a slave, but it was far worse. See, the Egyptians, and especially the royalty of Egyptians, they were elitist to the max. And so when you even look at old documentation, when they look up old um, paintings and everything, they begin to see how bad it was. So they were solely based on education and study. So if you look at the Egyptians, they're like, man, the less work you do, the more you study the better off in the hierarchy you are. So even the working middle class was looked down upon. They have this old painting of a pot maker who was working with clay. And what they would do is they'd take dirt and smudge and they would smear over the painting to show that he's, he's dirty. He's gross. You don't want to be like him. And so that's just what they think of the middle working class. So when you get to slaves, they would refer to them as the living dead. They would often be considered the same as donkeys. They were basically a commodity. They were like cattle. They weren't, they weren't anything to be valued other than, oh, yeah, I guess this is something that I can trade. When Moses was giving up being a prince of Egypt to a slave, he wasn't just you know, saying, I'm going to work a little bit harder. I'm going to give up some certain privileges. He was saying, I'm going to consider myself dead or like an animal from those that I knew before compared to now. See, and many of us think, oh, yeah, he walked away from some privilege and some riches. I think we underestimate how much money and how much status he walked away from. See, he was the Pharaoh's grandson, and many historians actually believe that he was being considered for the next in line to be Pharaoh, to be king of the biggest, the biggest, uh, the biggest nation at the time, the ruling power in the world, and he was next in line. See, even as an example, an, an English archaeologist named Howard Carter found the tomb of King, I'm going to butcher this name, but to Cuttenham, let's go with that. And this would be considered probably the king that is contemporary, the pharaoh that is contemporary with Moses. And they found billions and billions of dollars in gold in his tomb. That's just buried in his tomb. That's not just the working money. So when, when we're talking about Moses, he isn't just walking away from, you know, a 60K a year job. He's walking away from a multi-billionaire 
establish kingdom. See, but he looks at this and he, and he says, I have everything to lose and nothing to gain. But in a moment of compassion and seeing the suffering of God's people, he made a decision. See, he went from, he went and considered better to be a despised Hebrew rather than a privileged Egyptian. What's interesting in, in our culture, especially, and for cultures thousands of years, the hero's journey is usually the opposite. The prince disappears among the commoners, he connects with them, and eventually he gets found, he gets brought into the kingdom, and he becomes king. You guys know what I'm talking about. That's the classic story. Moses here is doing the opposite. He's leaving the kingdom to be found as a commoner, as a slave. See, he gave up his position, pleasure, and prosperity by doing and being rejected by the world's biggest temptation. You know what that is? Materialism. Materialism. See, we learn a simple but crucial truth from Moses in the story. And that's that the treasures of this world are empty compared to the love of Christ. See, and it's, it's it, you might think that's easy for you to say, Ty, you, you don't make that much compared to Moses. And that, that's true. But if somebody in the stature that's giving up the biggest nation in the world and billions of dollars can walk away for the sake of Christ, who are we? Who are we? See, now our culture loves and values money. In fact, there's this interesting story that some of you have probably heard bits and pieces of about a guy named Kyle McDonald. And he's famous for making trades, starting with a red paperclip and making trades all the way up until he traded for a free house. Now, he started with like the red. I think the first trade he did for the red um, paperclip was for a fish-shaped like themed pen. And he worked his way up, he worked his way up, and he worked his way up until he had actually traded for a recording contract. And then he traded that for an afternoon with Alice Cooper. Like you just got to have an afternoon with Alice Cooper. And he ended up trading that for a kiss-themed snow globe. And a lot of people for weeks would email him, text him, call him, telling him, you are the biggest idiot in the world. Who trades something like that for a snow globe? But what they didn't know is that he had already been in contact with somebody who was a snow globe collector and said, I'm looking for this specific Kiss snow globe. And when he traded for it, the man's like, I will trade you for this snow globe because I'm a collector for a multi-million dollar movie contract. Whoever you give it to, they can be in my next movie. They'll make millions of dollars. Seems like a pretty good trade. Seems like a pretty good trade. They didn't know that. So he ends up trading that. And when he trades for that, con- for that movie contract, this town over in Nebraska contacts him and says, hey, um, we want to become more of a tourist attraction. We have six new houses that the city owns. We will trade you one of these houses for that movie contract. And he's like, okay, I'll even do you one better. We'll hold tryouts in your town so people that try out for the movie and we end up giving it to them, we'll have to do it in your town and get you exposure. And they're like, awesome. So he ends up, that house right behind him, he started with a paperclip, traded his way up to a house. It's a crazy story, but he understood the value of that snow globe. See, I find it interesting that our currency, which is not biblically inspired by any means, has written on each dollar bill, in God we trust. The reason I find this so ironic is because the currency that says in God we trust is often the biggest idol in our culture. See, God calls us to identify with his people even when it causes us pain and persecution. See, many of us, if we were honest, if we were put in Moses' position, would be like, you know, I could just do more good as the king of Egypt than I could as a slave. I, uh, you know, could do more good having more money. I could do all these things. But that's not what Moses does. 
See, Moses took a radically God-centered approach to his career advancement. See, as far as he was concerned, there was no compromise with Pharaoh. He's not going to say, well, I'll, I'll look away from these evil, shady things. He says, I'm going to give and forsake all sin and all pleasure, even if it means suffering and being disgraced for the sake of Christ. See, there's many scriptures written to Christians that say we too as believers are called to suffer for the sake of Christ. Suffering is not a word that we like. It's not fun. The year is 2001. It's April 1st. And one of the most historical events of all time happened. WrestleMania 17. (laughs) To this day, it is still the biggest pay-per-view that has ever happened in the world. Stone Cold Steve Austin fights The Rock for the WWF title. They go to Texas. The, the stadium is filled with 70,000 people, which at that time was a record for that stadium in Texas. I, as an 11-year-old kid, was in the most anguish I've ever been in my entire life. I've lived a pretty good life. Stone Cold and The Rock were my all-time favorite WWF wrestlers. And so when they were pitted against each other, it's like, who do I root for? What do I do? You know, I started to have some panic attacks because I'm like, I just, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I love WWF so much. Like, I, I want you guys to understand how serious this was, that there was a 4th of July that landed on a Thursday night, which is not a pay-per-view night, but it's just a weekly SmackDown night. And my mom spent all this money buying us fireworks so we could light off. The whole neighborhood was there. And I'm like, no, mom, that's childish stuff. Me as a nine-year-old, I'm going to stay inside because I need to know, is the Undertaker going to beat Triple H? That's what we do here. And so I skipped the whole 4th of July because I cannot be taken away from WWF. And to make things worse, during this, this fight, as you can see, I love Stone Cold. I mean, we have the same look and everything. He's, an, he's a star. During the fight, it's going back and forth and back and forth. This is going on for like almost an hour. And eventually, the bad guy, Vince McMahon, he owns the company. You know, he's the man at the time. This is the early 2090s. He's the man. He comes out, and he hands Stone Cold a steel chair. And Stone Cold smacks the rock with a steel chair. They both beat him up together, and they pin the rock, and he wins. And I was just heartbroken. I was like, Stone Cold teamed up with the bad guys? I was like, he's anti-establishment. I'm like having an identity crisis. I'm like, what do I do? I can't root for him. I can never, I can never recover from this. See, trust is revealed by our choices. Stone Cold in the following interview after WrestleMania said in his interview, I don't care because the ends justify the means. Have you guys heard that before? Terrible saying, terrible saying because it's not biblical. See, Moses struggled with something that I think many of us do, and that's pride. In Acts chapter 7, verse 22, it says, Moses was taught all the wisdom of Egyptians, and he was powerful both in speech and action. One day when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, so Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelite would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day, he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you ruler and judge over us? He asked. Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses heard that he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. See, Moses had enough trust to leave his riches behind, his status behind, But Moses didn't have enough trust to leave his strength and ability behind. 
Moses, I like to think of, you know, many of us think of him as the frail old prophet with the magic stick that does all these things. But Moses at this time is in the prime of his life. Many historians believe that Moses was actually one of the greatest generals of Egypt's history. He won many wars, they believe, over Ethiopians and all through Africa, conquering them, many nations and money and doing all these things. So Moses wasn't just smart. Moses was very capable and very strong, and he was very rich. He's like the Batman of the Old Testament. I mean, this guy's got it all. He's got it all. And Moses was willing to give up his status as a king. He was willing to give up his money, but he was not willing to give up his ability because he thought... God, I don't need your help. I can do this myself. I've won wars before. I can do it again. See, the Hebrew language doesn't distinguish uh, very precisely between the word of beating and killing. The verb naka refers to both. So in here, when the Egyptian um, was beating the Hebrew, what they commonly believe is that he was on the verge, the slave driver was on the verge of beating the slave to death. How many of us, I just asked earlier, but... How many of us have ever thought or used that term, the ends justify the means? Because that's where Moses is in the situation. He visits and he sees one of his fellow people getting beaten to death. And he's like, I got to take matters into my own hands. This is not a good thing to do. But the ends will justify the means. See, even many Christian commentators struggle with this. So they find ways of trying to get Moses out of the charges. They try to find ways of justifying this. But here's the simple fact. What Moses did was wrong. See, it was wrong because it wasn't God's will. God at this point hadn't even called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. It was, re- it was wrong because it wasn't even done in God's way. God had not mo- commanded Moses to take up arms against oppressors. He hasn't said, like, be a liberator, go fight the- for your people at this time. See, later God would smite the Egyptians himself. And that was God's business. But he had not asked Moses to do this. See, many of us, what we don't understand is without meekness and humility, we greatly minimize our impact for God's kingdom. Now, here's something I really, really want to make sure that's clear. Because in today's culture, we don't really understand the word meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Weakness is not admirable. I don't look at guys that are weak and say, wow, man, really cool. Like, wow, that's awesome. You can't lift that 10-pound dumbbell. That's, you should be proud of that. No, weakness is something we're ashamed of. Weakness is something that we're not proud of. We don't put it in the dead of light. See, weakness is not admirable, but meekness is not weakness. Meekness simply means strength that's under control. See, meekness is having a sword, knowing how to use it, but keeping it sheathed. Meekness is somebody that is great in combat, that maybe has a black belt, has done military training, but doesn't jump to using fists every time they're in an argument with somebody. See, meekness is strength under control. See, and Moses' pride begins to emerge in this account because Moses chooses to employ his own strength to liberate his people. He's saying, God, I've got this. See, God had a plan for how he was going to deliver the Israelites, a plan uh, constructed to display God's glory and power, not Moses's, a plan that was going to um, show God's strength, not Moses' strength. But we as Christians... When we substitute our methods for God's methods, we're doing the exact same thing. We're saying, God, I, I understand what you want me to do, but the way I'm going to do it just, just makes a lot more sense. God, I know you want me to be honest, but if I do my taxes in this really shady way, I'm going to make more money. It's good. See, these prideful actions of Moses is also using his own timetable as well as his own methods. He's looking 
at this and saying, God, you're not doing this fast enough. People are suffering, so I'm going to take care of it. I think if we were honest, most of us Christians struggle with this. We don't sit there when things are hard and say, God, this is great. I trust you. I know you're going to come forth. We're saying, God, what are you doing? God, do you see what's going on? God, why aren't you moving? And we, we're tempted to take things into our own hands. See, it's easier for us to convince ourselves that God's not moving fast enough and that his methods are therefore insufficient. I'm often faced with this temptation where I'm just like, God, I know this is shady. I know this isn't right, but I'm going to take things into my own hand, into my own timetable because I know what's best. I think many of us struggle with the same thing. See, and the reality is when we engage in this behavior, we're not simply being prideful, but we're saying that, God, I'm sovereign over my own circumstances. God, I'm in charge of my life and everything that I have the ability to enact on. See, pride and self-sufficiency are simply a reflection of our self-love and self-idolatry. And the Bible tells us what happens when we begin to lean in this kind of behavior. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We may get short-term wins. We may think we're moving. But at the end of the day, that leads to destruction. See, Moses also lost something greater. He lost influence. See, these two, these two incidences proved that not only was Moses not ready, but the Israelites were not ready for what Moses was called to do. In James chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. As a kid, I was really angry. Very, very angry. I had circumstances in my life that, that made me a hothead, to say the least. And I remember when I first got counseling, I had this really interesting counselor that told me that anger was a gift for me. Like, if you can learn to channel and focus that anger, you can accomplish great things. And I began to take that to heart. She used works like, you're kind of like the Hulk. And I was like, yes, I am. Thank you. Boom. And I would begin to live a good portion of my life thinking that if I can just learn to use anger in the right way, that I was going to accomplish a lot. And there were some short-term games in that for sure. But ultimately, in the long term, it shattered relationships. It's something I still struggle with this to this day. Because when those feelings come over me, you're not thinking, God, what do I do? You're thinking, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. You're not like, bless you. You must have somewhere you need to be. You're like, my truck's bigger than your car. <laughs> Physics is on my side. I remember reading the scripture and being so prideful in my anger and the ability to use it. I was like, man, people really respect me. And I read this and it shattered me. Because what this is telling us is that our selfishness, even when we're using it for the right things, does not produce the righteousness that God desires. See, it was by the prophetic shepherding staff and not the military sword and might that God worked through Moses. It was not the wrath of Moses that saved the people, but it was the wrath and deliverance of God. See, becoming a fugitive was bad enough. Being alienated against the people he had grown up with was bad enough. But now he's alienated himself against the very people he wants to help and lead. The Israelites had began to reject him. See, rather than showing him respect, they regarded him as with utter contempt. See, apparently Moses in this was probably thinking, if I just begin to, to underground, start making these people disappear, if I begin to take matters into my own hands, eventually people are going to join me and there's going to be a revolt. I'm a mighty military leader. I can do all this. If people will follow me, we can conquer the Egyptians ourselves. But as far as the slaves were concerned, 
Moses was meddling in things and sticking his nose in things that he had no right to. Who do you think you are? The man said. Who died and made you the prince of Egypt? And that's a great question because honestly, God at this point had not called Moses. God had not given Moses authority over Israel. So the answer was no one. No one had given Moses this authority. See, Moses then would be stuck spending 40 years before God would call him again with the burning bush. This short-term gain that Moses thought he was going to take into his own hands, being self-appointed as Savior, cost Moses another 40 years before the people of Israel would look at him as a leader again. See, rather than repeating the word, the Hebrew word for striking that we talked about earlier, the, the slave who was talking back to Moses used the word for killing. In other words, when Moses said, why are you guys fighting? He's like, who are you to talk, murderer? So Moses couldn't even simply solve social issues because he was already charged with a homicide. How is he going to lead an entire nation without credibility? Because he destroyed it himself. It would be a long, long time before Moses could regain the respect of the people. Almost a lifetime, in fact, it took them before they trusted him because of one simple failure. Moses spent 40 years preparing for this moment, and within minutes had thrown it all away. I love talking about this all the time. Me and Tony go to the gym and work out. And the other week we were talking and we were look, we were like talking about how many people come and they're, they're like, man, you're married and you're over here flirting with other people that you're not married to and all this stuff. And the topic began to get brought up of affairs and how ridiculous they are. You're, you're, you're trading your entire life for five minutes of pleasure. It makes no sense when you say it like that. But no one thinks of it like that. Their emotions, their pride gets in the way. See, although Moses didn't have an affair, in these few minutes of passion and zeal, it cost him 40 more years of his life and consequences. Whenever we attempt to replace God's timetable with our own, we're doing the same thing ourselves. Whenever we say, God, you know, I trust you, but I got this. No worries. We're slowing down the way that God is able to use us. See, God begins to refine Moses through the situation. By his prideful actions, Moses was implying that he didn't need God and he could do it alone. The more we learn about Moses through all of history, the more this is tragic. And how, this mis- and how tragic it is that this mistake cost him so much. See, Moses was a guy with a lot of admirable qualities. He hated injustice. He opposed slavery. He was sympathetic for those who suffered. He had a deep affections for God's people. And with one quick, rash decision, he threw it all away. See, although he had holy zeal to rescue God's people and to do God's work, he didn't balance his zeal with the knowledge of the Lord. Romans 10 tells us that zeal without knowledge leads to folly. His failure had nothing to do with his motivations. His heart was in the right place, but the problem was his method. Moses was trying to save God's people by his own works rather than let God save them by his grace. By using his own timetable and method, Moses was declaring that he did not need God. The results of this prideful attitude 
means like, God, just allow him to do it. God says, okay, you think you have it? You think God had figured it out? Go ahead. God let Moses take control of his life for a few minutes and he destroyed everything. See, Moses ran off alone to Midian. He ventured into a great detour that would delay his involvement in the deliverance of God's people for 40 years. Slaves suffered another 40 years. Moses went into 40 years of hardship because of one quick decision, because Moses proved that he wasn't ready to be used. He needed more preparation and God allowed this detour because God was gracious. I'm going to share a story with you guys that um, I've never shared publicly that besides my wife, few people know. But a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I was a youth pastor at a church and I, I loved doing it. It, um, it was going so well. Our youth ministry was growing so fast. I didn't know what to do. I was trying to get enough leaders to, to help me disciple and things, things were awesome. And, and I was feeling blessed and I really felt the hands of the Lord. Things were being anointed. Lives were being changed. Students were being called into ministry. It was going so well. The problem was that Sunday morning was suffering. As the youth group grew, the Sunday morning service was beginning to decline. And uh, my pastor being afraid and, and, and angry and fearful uh, began to lash out. Every time publicly he was in front of the church with me around, he would tell him about how big of an imbecile I was. He would uh, work about 10 hours a week. I'd work about 60 and he made four times as much as me. He would uh, do shady things with finances because he thought that it would help bring more people in. He began to preach in ways that was more pointing fingers at people rather than showing them the love of God. He's like, you need, you need, you, 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 you need to do this. And it became challenging because as those things started to happen, things got worse and worse. And um, people even started coming to youth groups saying, man, we just want to hear you preach more. So we're going to start helping in youth group just because we love hearing you preaching. And I was like, thank you. That's awesome. And uh, I had, I remember one, one Wednesday night, a board member had come to youth group and afterwards he pulled me aside and he's like, Ty, I really wish a pastor would go and you'd become our lead pastor. And in my heart, I got puffed up. I got arrogant. I was like, yeah. I should be a lead pastor. God's called me to pastor. Like, I'm going to do this. I, I Look at how God's showing me favor. Look how he's not him. This is my time to rise and take things into my own hands. And things kind of came to a boiling point one Sunday morning. Uh, one of my students and an intern were with me. We were uh, My intern was running slides and learning things. Our associate pastor was just right down the hall. And during a worship service, my intern accidentally put up the wrong lyrics. And my pastor, in front of everyone, came back there and took a swing at me. And so I just kind of move out of the way. And I'm just looking like, uh, did, did you guys see that happen? And everyone, like the associate pastor, the, the intern, everyone came to me and they're like, I can't believe he would do that. And I just, in my heart, in that moment said, yes, this is it. He made a mistake. Everyone saw, I'm going to come and I'm going to take the throne. It's all going to be mine. And in that moment, God spoke to me and it broke me. He's like, who are you? Who are you? Did I call you to do this? Did I ask you to do this? Your pride is being revealed right now and you're showing that you're not ready to do what I've called you to do. In that moment, I, I broke. And I began weeping and the, the intern and the student didn't know what to do. They thought I was crying because I was scared because the pastor was swinging at me and all this kind of stuff. And within two weeks, I'd resigned from the church and never went back. And I was broken. I cried. I love that youth ministry. I love that church. I, I, I so desperately wanted to be there. But I knew that if I stayed, I'd become exactly what I hated. That in that moment, I would take things into my own hands and I would, usurp, and I would try to usurp the throne for myself. 
And this scripture in Isaiah chapter 48 came to my mind. Yet for my own sake and for the honor of my name, I will hold back my anger and not wipe you out. I have refined you, but not as silver is refined. Rather, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. I will rescue you for my sake. Yes, for my own sake. I will not let my reputation be tarnished and I will not share my glory with idols. And when, that, when God spoke that to me, I sat there and started weeping because I was like, God, I've become my own idol. God, the ways that you blessed me, I was beginning to look at for my own gain. The lives you were changing, I began to at least internally take credit for. See, silver was a lot harder than gold to refine. It required a lot more pressure, it required more intense heat, it required a lot more severity. When God pulled Moses into the desert and the people suffered for another 40 years, that was God's grace. That was God's grace because God had said, you need 40 more years to be in the furnace of affliction before I can use you. The story has a hopeful glimpse because continue in Hebrews 11 in verse 27, it says, it was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt. Not fearing the king's anger, he kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. See, when Moses ran to Midian, if that's all the context you have, you may think he's running with his tail tucked between his legs trying to get out of there. But what it says is Moses began to see the error of his own ways. And in that, he ran because he's like, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I tried things my way and it's not working. And he ran because he had his eyes focused on God. He saw that it was God that was going to save, not himself. And many of us may be in that same situation. We may be in a season of being refined because of the mistakes we made. We may be in a season where things are going well and we're being arrogant because we think that doing our things our own way are better. Maybe we're in a season of blessing and we've walked through that refinement and we can look back and say, God, you've been so gracious to me. But I want to end by asking this question. Where do you place your trust if I can have the elders come up to the front, um, God, God spoke through someone and they came to me before this gathering and said that I felt that we were supposed to pray for people. And so here's here's what I want to here's what I want to ask. If you're here and God is beginning to refine you, if you're feeling that pressure and that intensity, and you have things in your life you need to work out, which is all of us, right? I want to invite you to come and pray with one of our elders. I'm, I'm not someone who believes in close your eyes, come up, because here's my thing, guys. If you can't step up here and be prayed for in a church that loves you, that wants the best for you, how are you going to stand up for God when you leave these doors? So on the count of three, if you're here and you're saying, God, I'm struggling with trust. God, I've been doing things my own way. God, I need to be refined. On the count of three, I want you to come up and pray with one of our elders. One, two, three. God, right now, I thank you for this church. God, right now, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your mercy, your grace. God, I thank you for your spirit moving in our lives. I pray that as we hear this, that it wouldn't just be some motivational speech, but God, you'd begin to do the hard work of refinement in our life. That we wouldn't be puffed up on the gifts that you've given us. But God, we would solely put our trust in you. 
Our trust wouldn't be in financial gains. Our trust wouldn't be in status. Our trust wouldn't be in good circumstances. Our trust wouldn't be in, in, in savings accounts or our, our body or our capabilities or our smarts. But God, our trust would solely be in you. God, that we would be patient when things are hard. God, that we would be patient when you're refining us. God, that if you take 40 years to make us more like you, to make us usable, God, thanks for being gracious because we don't deserve it. God, I pray that those of us who are here, God, would just hear from you, that you would speak, God, that you would bless, that as we stand up, God, that you would just draw men unto yourself, God, that you would use our lives, both good and bad, for good. God, as Romans 8, 28 says, that you use all things for good for those that, you, those that love you. God, I pray that as we love you, God, that you would use our circumstances, our weakness, our strengths, our circumstances, everything in this life to make us more like you. God, do the good work that only you can do. Do the good work that only you can do. God, we love you. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're up here and you're still praying, continue to pray. If, you're, if you felt like you are supposed to come and you haven't come, feel free to come at any point. But I just want to walk you real quick through our connection cards. If we could put up on the screen. This is something that we do every week that we can all do together. There's a few things that we may consider. If you're here and uh, this is your first time, you may consider putting on that connection card. This is my first time. I don't know much about Jesus, but I want to. Maybe you're here and you're thinking of what do you trust and you're realizing things in your life that you hold as idolatry, whether it be your means, your status, your strengths. We would love to pray with you. We'd love for you to consider. One further thing we want to mention uh, is if there's anything we can be praying with you about, we want to know what we can be praying with you about. Um, our church is a praying church, and we, we have a prayer team that prays for needs. So if there's something in your life that it's a need that needs prayer, we will pray for it. Our elders pray every Wednesday at 6 a.m. for every need that comes through on our connection card. So please let us know. One thing as a church family we need to be praying for is the Manning family. Uh, last night, Harold Manning passed away and went to be with Jesus. And uh, that's left our, our, our dear Pastor Bruce and the rest of the Manning family at a tremendous loss. And so we need to be praying for... Uh, Bruce and the entire Manning family surrounding them with our love in this time. So um, that's uh, if there's anything we can be praying with you about, please do mark your connection card. Let us know what we can be praying with you about. Let's rally around Pastor Bruce and their entire family in this in this uh, time of bereavement right now. All right. Well, church, let's stand together as we dismiss. What a powerful powerful word from Pastor Ty in a challenging world word uh, when he was talking about f- doing those uh, those uh, faith things, the trust falls. I was immediately like, I know exactly what he's talking about. I've done those. I don't trust nobody. (laughs) Uh, And there's times where trusting God feels like that, where we are releasing the control we have. Have you ever thought about the verse that says, cast all your cares and anxieties upon him because he cares for you? You hear that verse? I like that thought, but do you know what that means? Is it means we no longer are holding on to something if we cast it, right? If we throw it, it means we no longer have control and have hold of it. So we take those things and we trust him with it. So whatever that might be this week, as you are carrying the worry and the burden because you think you are controlling it, let's cast it on the Lord and trust him with it this week. Amen. Lord, we thank you so much for the word that came out today that, uh, that we can trust you 
with our future, we can trust you with our day-to-day, that we don't need to hold on to these things. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to break loose the parts uh, of our lives where we would say, this is the area of my control, but we would put it in your hands and trust you with it. I pray that this week you would bless this church in profound ways. Lord, um, there is so much fear going on in our world with what's on the news, with what we hear uh, just in the day-to-day. Lord, I pray that this would be a victorious church that we would hear stories and we would hear testimonies through this week of your hand and your provision in our church community. And we thank you for it, Jesus. And together we all said, amen, amen. God bless you, New Life. Have a wonderful day.